Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you read with me again in the back of your Psalters with Lord's Day 22. What comfort doth the resurrection of the body afford thee? Answer, that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. Well, congregation, in our series through the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, we're coming to a close of this uh, important section that is explaining the source of our deliverance from sin. That is the message of the everlasting gospel. We've seen that it is a gospel of a loving heavenly father. It is a gospel of Christ, his son, who has accomplished this salvation for us. And it is also a gospel of the Holy Spirit. And in that latter section of the Apostles' Creed, which is really that summary of our um, source of deliverance by the gospel, you have setting forth the benefits of this salvation received by the Holy Spirit in this life and in the life to come. We've been considering particularly those benefits that consist in this life, that we are united to the true universal church, We receive the communion of saints, the benefits of that Christian fellowship. We receive the forgiveness of sins by the blood and righteousness of Christ. Now the transition is much more towards those benefits that have much more of a future focus. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We'll take up this afternoon the resurrection of the body, a part of the Christian confession which is perhaps particularly offensive to natural man, perhaps in our age especially, which discounts all that is supernatural, the idea of the human body being restored and made whole upon the last day of this world seems very fantastic, but indeed It's been something that was considered offensive throughout the history of this world when the early Christians were forging their biblical confessions. They were particularly keen to include this part of the confession in order to discount the Gnostic heretics who claimed to be Christians and yet came to the text of the scripture with a very faulty interpretation which argued that the material world is bad that our physical bodies, there is something wrong and foul about them and the God who made them. And so the Christian discounts this and indeed on the basis of scripture says that not only is the salvation of the gospel something that concerns the soul, it also concerns our bodies. Now, it's this uh, truth that I'd like to um, direct us to in the scriptures, and we will be looking at a number of texts this afternoon, but particularly I would like to focus on Job chapter 19, which 
we will be considering with particular uh, emphasis. And uh, from that text, I'd like to draw out the three main uh, doctrines that we find in our catechism as well. The first being um, that when we confess the resurrection of the body, we are uh, considering the separation of body and soul. The, in the second place, the reunion of body and soul. And the third place is the glorification of the body. So the separation of body and soul, the reunion of body and soul, and the glorification of the body. And these things, I trust, will direct us to the biblical teaching concerning the resurrection of the body. Now, the the verses to which I would draw your attention are found here in the book of Job, the 19th chapter. And the book of Job, as you know, was written to record the spiritual trials by this good and righteous man who had endured some of the worst afflictions that you see recorded in all of biblical history. Though a godly man, a man of faith, and a man who had been blessed through many different means in his life, the devil saw fit to bring afflictions into his life, and God chose to permit this to happen in order to test his faith. And so it was that through various disasters, his family was killed, his many children, there was terrible bankruptcy and financial calamity, and as well, terrible health problems. He was left in a state where he was covered with these uh, very painful sores and was taken to sitting on an ash heap and scraping them with a piece of pottery. In such a terrible state, at this point, both his wife and his closest friends began to attack him and to condemn him, criticizing him in different ways. And in the previous chapter of this book, in the 18th chapter, you have one of his so-called friends by the name of Bildad, who is really seeking to prosecute this point that Job is being punished for his sins and seeking to lay out his basic theological worldview. He lays out in chapter 18 that God is determined to punish the guilty. Those who are guilty of sin will be punished. And ultimately that punishment culminates in his just taking of their life. So he says there in verses 17 and 18 of Job 18, His remembrance shall perish from the earth, and he shall have no name in the stream. He shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. And you read on in that chapter, and it carries on in this light. There is death and darkness and doom awaiting the wicked. Such was the nature of the theological argument put before Job. And You can see in Job's response here in 19 that this afflicts him, it torments him, that he who in his conscience knows that he trusts in God should be accused of being um, tormented for sin that he has no recollection of and no understanding of. He carries on in great length about how it is that he is at the depths of despair, that he is 
he is greatly vexed that both his friends are tormenting him and he feels much forsaken of God. But then near the end, there, there takes this turn in the chapter, and he speaks in verses 23 and 24 about something which lies upon his heart that he would have to be written for all time. He begins to say they would have them printed in a book, but, but then says, no, that wouldn't be good enough. He wants it engraven in stone with a very pen of iron that it may be read forever. It's as though he's saying he wants this as his epitaph, as though he wants this written upon his tombstone for all future generations to see. Well, what is it that's so important? He speaks it in verses 25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Here is the faith of one of God's chosen ones, one of his elect people, shining forth in this glorious display, though friends have forsaken him, and though he feels that there's much signs of God's displeasure in his life, yet he is holding firm to this. He is believing in his Redeemer. And this Faith in the Redeemer, it carries forward not only through his present difficulties, trials, but all the way unto eternity. And it seems that he's especially taking up this point that his friend had raised, that, that um, point about the, the wicked having their doom to come and also uh, being characterized in their death. He takes that up and structures all these comments around his certain truth that his body will be destroyed, and yet that will not be the end. You see, a true faith in the Lord, a true faith in the Redeemer, must conquer the threat and the fear of death. Otherwise, it is not worthy of the Christian name. And certainly, there may be those who are never occupied with death or the realities that come upon us when we are faced with it. But once it rears its head, then we are grasping for something solid, something that can actually bring us a sense of relief, consolation, and comfort in the midst of that stark truth. Now, I want to, in the first place, speaking about the separation of body from soul as the very essence of what death is, make a note of caution here. Some have taken singular verses or passages from the scripture and drawn a whole theology of death from them. So, for example, the fact that Job's friend Bildad would speak in verse 18 of chapter 18 as death of, as a simple darkness, as though that uh, grave which the body is put into is merely all there is in death. And they would take that and say, well, that's all the Bible, or at any rate, the Old Testament sees in this reality of death. And nothing of a, um, of a supernatural nature is involved. Others would look at Job's words 
and say that the future hope and faith of this believer, it is all directed towards the final consummation of all things upon the Lord's return. And yet, the reality is that when we look at the fuller biblical teaching, there's much more to it than that. So, for that end, I'd like to take up that point. The body being destroyed. Job sees that there's a future that lies before him. But is he, he having some sort of view that all that awaits for him is a resurrection state and there's nothing actually awaiting his soul? Well, the truth is far contrary when we compare it with other passages of Scripture and particularly our confession which notes that the soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ, its head. Where is our confession deriving that from? Well, it really goes back, doesn't it, to the creation of man as a spiritual entity, not only material and physical with a body, but as well with a spirit or a soul. Same idea. Thus we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There you have it, God creating from the dust that first man made in the image of God, a physical body, a non-physical soul consisting of the mind and the will, the identity, the inner man now joined together according to God's good creation. And yet, we know that upon Adam's terrible fall into sin, God pronounced that curse in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. This beautiful body, this glorious human uh, creation which God made in order to manifest the image of God in this physical world, it would return unto the dust from which it came, according to the pronouncement that the wages of sin is death. And how is it that we're to think about this death? Certainly not as the world does, as just another event, sometimes I would, uh, when I was a funeral director, do arrangements with someone who was preparing for their own funeral. And what they would sometimes request is, I want to be cremated. And, okay, well, why is it that you want to be cremated? Well, I want to make sure that no one ever puts me back together again. What is that showing? Well, they just have a view that the human body is all that there is, this physical being, that is what generates our consciousness. And so there is no existence of our identity upon that physical um, decomposition. And yet you read further in that Old Testament book, and, or rather the Old Testament uh, scriptures. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 7, we read, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. That death is not the end. There is a soul, there is a spirit, and that returns to God. 
It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Each one of us upon our death, our souls go to the Lord for that immediate provisional judgment. The the elect ones into life eternal and those who die reprobate in the eternal torments of hell. But for the Christian, this is something that is of great interest to us because there have been those who have said, and while claiming to be Christian, groups like, for example, the Seventh-day Adventist, that the, the state of a Christian upon their death is not one of conscious existence. Rather, it's what they call soul sleep. It's like who you are, maybe gets downloaded to a hard drive, as it were, but there's no active existence. You're brought back online upon the last day of days, but, but really you're, you're not going to experience or know anything upon your death. That was a very novel view that came on the scene in the 19th century and, and still sometimes crops up that people hold these things. But obviously, if you give it a moment's thought, you know, there's many passages of scripture that would refute it. And for myself, I bring us to that scene on the cross where there is the Lord Jesus bearing the sins of his people. And there are those two thieves on either side of him. Matthew records that initially they were both mocking the Lord Jesus. But upon a certain point, one of them has a change of heart and begins to feel guilty about this and begins to rebuke the other thief and says, Dost thou not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. He's done nothing wrong, he says. And... In Luke 23, verse 42, and he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Today. And you listen to those people who believe in soul sleep, how it is they have to distort and really torture this passage in order to save their novel view. But the clear teaching there is that immediately upon death, today, you are with the Lord Jesus Christ upon your death. Your soul goes to be with him. Indeed, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 you can read there about how there the very souls of the, of the departed saints are not only very conscious and active, but indeed they cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them, that they should rest yet a little season till their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So there you have the dead martyrs there in heaven, very conscious and pictured symbolically with white, white robes. But if you were to contemplate this further, you'd have to look at the words of the Apostle Paul himself who reflects upon this glorious truth about his uh, 
his departure to be with the Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, where he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Now that is something that I trust every Christian can relate to. Paul feels like he's between these two options, and both of them seem both good and bad. To live in this world means you are useful to others. You can advance the glory of the Lord. You can be an encouragement to the saints as you continue to live in this life. But to be with Christ, to depart and be with him immediately upon your death, well, that's far better for you. That is sort of the the paradox or the tension in the Christian life. Yes, a Christian, if you would rightly think upon what it is to be with your Lord, you ought to be ready to die now. You ought to be ready to die at any moment and even, in a sense, welcome that, for it means being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, you say, not my will, but thy will be done. It seems good to you to place me in this world, in this life, to love and to serve others. And so it is good that I be here and await the appointed time to be with you. There is the Christian confession. So I trust, congregation, that comparing both Job with the whole teaching of Scripture, we get something of the full-orb teaching that we find in the Catechism, that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up, to Christ its head. Let us hold fast to that. Let us never for a moment entertain the false teachings from different uh, groups that would lead us away from this. Least of all, that doctrine of purgatory invented by the Roman Catholic Church and completely unsupported in the scripture that the Christian must continue to experience punishment and torment in order to be purged of sin before entering into heaven. It is flatly against scripture and completely against the comfort and joy which is owed by every, or rather which is received by every child of God. Now, I would also bring us to the second heading that we should consider, and that is not only the separation of body and soul, but also the reunion of them. That is really the heart of Job's confession, won't you agree? For I know, he says in Job 19, verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. What is going on here? Well, what is going on here is that it is not merely that your soul lives on forever. Indeed, that would be a glorious thing and much more than we deserve, that the soul should go unto heaven there to worship and adore the triune God forever. But the truth is is much more glorious than that. How it was that Job was acquainted with it, whether through the gift of prophecy, 
or through uh, some exposure to the Hebrew scriptures. It's hard to tell, partly because it's hard to tell when Job uh, lived. But he was not a Hebrew. He was uh, growing up in Arabia, most likely. And yet he had the faith of every child of God. And that is that the Lord restores both body and soul. Notice how he speaks of his Redeemer. He speaks of a Savior. In the Hebrew, it's Goel, which has the idea of a, of a Redeemer who is a kinsman. One who comes into your, uh, your experience to redeem you, but is, is one like yourself. One who is part of your kindred. So he speaks of, of a Redeemer who lives... But that Redeemer is also God. Yet in my flesh shall I see God. It's an amazing thing, but here is a confession of the God-man, the very Son of God. And he speaks of this Son of God as standing on the earth. Standing upon the earth. When does he stand? Well, it would be one thing if there was a confession of his standing upon the earth in the days of his childhood, after conceived in the Virgin and growing up in Joseph's home, it would be another if it spoke about him standing upon the earth in the days of his earthly ministry, there the dusty roads of Galilee. It would be another thing if it spoke of him standing there upon that glorious resurrection morning when he took up his life that he had laid down for his people. But the day upon which he will stand upon the earth is the latter day, the last day, the final day. Here we have Christ returning in glory and splendor there on the clouds and setting down his holy feet upon the earth which he made, the earth which rejected and despised him in his ministry, that earth that he will stand upon. And there Job knows and is certain that when he does stand there, he will be standing there too, looking upon this very divine Redeemer with his eyes. How can we account for this? How can we explain it? Well, there is this belief in the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection, body and soul being reunited not through any natural means, not as though there's something in the body that must come back together through some natural process. No, but the very God who spoke this world into being and the very God who sustains it by his divine power, this very God will speak the word. And there assembles all the particular pieces, all the particular aspects of all the people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. And it's not too hard for God. We can't imagine it. We can't conceive of what this would involve. But God knows every molecule, every atom in the universe. He knows, well, there is a bit of John Calvin. There is a bit of Moses. There is a bit of Job. And and all of a sudden, by speaking it into being, there is every one of us standing there, beholding the very divine Redeemer with his feet upon the earth, and we ourselves beholding him with our eyes. It is something that is sure and certain. 
something that the infallible scriptures speak to in many places. And to my, my thinking, probably the best and clearest passage is found in John chapter 5, verse 26, where the Lord Jesus speaks about this particularly, how he himself is this divine Savior and Redeemer that Job expected. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So there you have it very closely connected, of course, to the doctrine of the final judgment, which we considered a number of Lord's days past, because that resurrection day will not be a happy thing for the unbeliever and the one who has despised the gospel, such as those will be resurrected, but not unto a state of life and blessing, but to a state of eternal damnation and torment. They will be made fit receptacles for the Lord's wrath, both in body and in soul, for eternity. But for the believer, for the Christian, for the one who has fled unto Christ, that one will find it to be a resurrection of life. And all this, we should say, is done by the Redeemer himself. It is God the Father who has committed this great role unto his Son, that this one, Jesus Christ, should be the very instrument by which all things are accomplished. And it isn't a wonder that the very one who is both God and man should use his divine power in this glorious way as the very one who will bring about this resurrection. This is surely why Job points this particularly to a faith in him. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand on the latter day upon the earth. And through. And though my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. You see, because he knew his Redeemer lived, he knew that his body could not but be restored. He knew that when his body went into the ground, and when his his tombstone and epitaph were written, that would not be the end. Do you ever go into a cemetery You go in there and you see all the gravestones. You read about how this one died young. That one died suddenly. This one died under terrible circumstances. You look and you look and you see that some of them confessed hope in Christ. Some of them maybe even quoted Bible passages like this, engraven on their tombstone. And then you think, what will it be like on that day? What will it be like to be sitting there in the grave side of all these people and then the Lord Jesus touches down and the all these graves give up their dead and all of them are risen there to behold the Redeemer what will it be like to behold the the that scene well the reality is that though it may seem very far off the reality is that 
that can be very close. The Lord will come suddenly as a thief in the night, and that will as certainly happen as you are sitting in your pews right now. It is something that God has spoken to, and the one who cannot lie will surely bring it to pass. And so, believer, when you go beside the graveside of a departed loved one, and when you look upon your own place and your own grave and and we're given to worry about what will become of you. It is this that you can build your life upon. I believe in the resurrection of the body. I'd like to dwell for a few moments on that last point that we were considering. Not only the body and soul being separated and then them being reunited, but in the third place being glorified. Notice with me there in Job chapter 19, verse 27, where he speaks, I shall, uh, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So his reins, it really speaks of his, his heart, his passions, his emotions. He's consumed within him. He is driven to this. He is yearning for this day. Picture him there scraping his sore wounds, enduring these unjust accusations in the pit of depression and sorrow and grief for his lost loved ones. And yet he says in the midst of all it, though everything should go wrong in my life and though everyone should forsake me, I am yearning, yearning for that glorious day. Imagine beholding the Savior. Imagine the glorious thing that will behold at that day. Perhaps you say, how can we be fit to look upon his glory? How is it that these poor eyes will not be, be just shriveled up at the sight of his brightness, of his majesty? How will we be able to receive the glory of the, the Son of God himself? Well, the answer is that there will be this transformation. There will be this glorification such that we are able to experience the pleasure and the delight which right now probably would kill us in an instant. It says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto himself. His very power, which not only can subdue all things to himself and and restore body and soul, that very power of the Son of God, it will be used to transform us so that we have bodies like his own, glorified bodies that are able to experience the majesty and the glory of heavenly joys can't imagine what that is like. And indeed, the Bible intimates that it's really impossible to imagine. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's interesting that all these passages, in particular this one of Job, it it seems to be wrapped up with this whole idea that you become like what you worship. If you would worship idols, then you'll become like idols. 
If you would set your love upon that which is perishing and fading away, then there is only eternal death for you. But if you set your heart upon the glorified Son of God, this Redeemer who lives and lives forevermore, then in beholding him, you will not only see him as he is, you will become more and more like him for never-ending ages. I think C.S. Lewis said that if you would look uh, at a Christian today, they may seem very unremarkable and, and uninteresting. But, you know, if you would look on that same Christian on resurrection morning, then you would be very tempted to worship that creature because it's so much like the Son of God. What an amazing thing it will be that we will behold Jesus Christ being transformed from glory unto glory, being a more and more like him, and in that way becoming filled with the knowledge of the true God. Is this appealing to you? Is this something that makes you want to have what one of our fathers called a holy carelessness about the things of the world? Yes, not careless about your duties, not careless about obedience, but careless when it comes to worries and concerns about the needs of the day and the hour. Because what really matters ultimately is partaking of that heavenly glory. And that is received today, dear one. Received today. If you will flee into Jesus Christ by faith, you can experience that glorious resurrection joy. Let us consider these wonderful words that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this body being raised up by the power of Christ shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body 